You're listening to Pythagoras' Trousers. Hello and welcome to this month's Pythagorean Astronomy with me, Chris North. And me, Edward Gomez. Let's start off with uh, habitable exoplanets, so planets around other stars that may or may not be habitable. And there was a lot of attention in the news uh, this month uh, about uh, a planet called K218b, which is a bit of a telephone number, um, discovered by the K2 mission, the second part of the Kepler spacecraft mission. So K218b uh, is a planet going around a star. Uh, The planet is a little bit bigger than the Earth, and the exciting news that got everyone uh, all a fluster was that it seems to have water vapour in its atmosphere. Yeah, um, and water vapour is one of those things that uh, astronomers and uh, astrobiologists consider a very important thing for the habitat for life because really the only life that we know about is on Earth and we quite like water on Earth. And uh, so having water vapour and then proving that there's water vapour, not the potential existence, but actually having a look at the, uh, the, the light in a very particular way using uh, not just pictures, but uh, detailed measurements of the light using things called spectrographs, where you, uh, you look at the different colours of light and, and you look at use that to work out what the different elements in the the atmosphere of the planet is and uh, water vapor was one of them um, so, so, so this chemical fingerprint of water vapor seen in this uh, in this planet not the first time that's happened there are lots of other planets that's or several other planets that, that that's been been done for but most of those have been very very close to their star very very hot planets so steam steamy atmospheres not very good place to go looking for places we could live um, this planet is in the habitable zone of its star so it's um yeah, yeah the light from the star is about the same as the light the intensity in the, the potentially the surface temperature of the planet is approximately the same as the surface tension at uh, the surface temperature of the earth uh, and that would be the case if this planet were a little bit more like the earth but it's not really it's quite a lot well, it's it's not that much bigger. It's maybe two and a bit times bigger, about eight times the mass. It's more like uh, in our own solar system, uh, getting towards a Neptune-like planet. So a very very thick atmosphere. So the the idea that there's there's water vapor and quite possibly clouds in in this atmosphere actually tells us relatively little about the or almost well apart from atmospheric models tells us what the surface might be like we don't even know how thick the atmosphere is just that it's probably very thick so this is very far from what you might consider you know a second earth like you know an earth like oh, very definitely earth. yeah not a second earth and, th- and that's the problem with the the concept of habitability is that uh it's it's really quite hand wavy you just need um a planet that's in the right part of its solar system so where the the light from the star isn't too hot so that it fries the surface and isn't too cold so that everything's frozen it's in this this sweet spot where the earth lies in our solar system and having water on the surface or around the the surface in the atmosphere somewhere is is also one of the key things but it doesn't tell you if there's any life there Mm. at all Venus has water vapour in its atmosphere. Exactly, um, yeah. And is in the habitable zone, yeah. just about. Uh, as is Mars, yeah. just about, and, and has water vapour clouds. So, yeah, it, it doesn't doesn't tell you an awful lot. So this planet is not going to be a good place to look for um, uh, life as we know it, uh, at least. But it, the fact that we can do these measurements on such small planets is the interesting thing. So they're looking, they look at the light as it gets filtered through the atmosphere. The light from the star originally gets filtered by the atmosphere 
and that that uh, the different chemicals leave this imprint on, on on that light. Doing that for these small planets gives us hope that um, future missions can do that for planets that are much more like the Earth. So that are rather than being two or more, two or three times the size of the Earth, are the same size as the Earth, so likely to be a rocky planet. Yeah, this technique is is incredibly difficult to do. Uh, it requires taking extremely precise, detailed measurements of the the light, like you were saying, Chris, that the light that's passed through the atmosphere of the planet from the star. And uh, when you think, the, the only light that we're seeing is the, the star's light being blocked out by the planet a great distance away. It's amazing that we can do these measurements at all. Um, these measurements were done with the Hubble Space Telescope and the Spitzer Space Telescopes, um, uh, as well as the original measurements by, by Kepler and the discovery by Kepler and the Kepler-2 mission. There are planned missions which are specifically to do this type of measurement, not general-purpose telescopes like Hubble and Spitzer are, but really specific, tuned cameras and instruments on, on telescopes that are specifically designed to do this. So one example there is Ariel, which is a, a European Space Agency mission designed for the launch in um, you know, a decade or thereabouts, it, it's a little way off, uh, to go and do exactly this, as, as you say. You said the measurement's very small, so if you just consider now the planet's blocking out um, maybe uh, a thousandth the light of the sun, of its star, for example. That's the planet itself. And the atmosphere is in this tiny ring around the edge of the planet. So you're looking for not just the, the that change, that 1% or 0.1% dimming of the star's light because the planet is blocking it, but you're looking for the imprint on the maybe the 0.1% of that 0.1%. Yeah, it's, it's an impossible task. And that's why, actually, the, this planet was really good for doing that because uh, it had a relatively small period so it meant that with the telescopes they used they could see it do this this eclipsing of its star multiple times and and that made the data much higher quality they could they could check their measurements multiple times in school you're told to repeat measurements three times for example yeah exactly it's that kind of the same idea of averaging everything out to reduce the reduce the uncertainty on things so, uh, not uh, an Earth-like planet uh, as we might know it, um, but uh, certainly an interesting step, uh, a very, very interesting step in looking for uh, planets that in the future that we might find uh, potentially like the Earth. Um, stepping further afield and up in scale, so from, from planets that are two or more times the size of the Earth to stars that are two or more times the size of the Sun. Now, we get lots of stars that are much more massive uh, than that, but this is the particular type of star that's been discovered. It's a neutron star. Uh, that's the dead hulk of an exploded star, a dead star that uh, died uh, many, uh, probably many hundreds of millions or billions of years ago. Uh, and... Um, the one that's been discovered, uh, which has got a, again, it's, it's, it's got a telephone number, um, J0740 plus 6620. Uh, I hope you're remembering that, Edward. Um, it's uh, a very, very fast rotating neutron star, and that's meant its measurement, its, its mass can be measured, and it's, it's just a bit more than two solar masses, two times the mass of the Sun. Um, that's interesting because it's not been known whether that's possible before. Yeah, and the, there have been several the biggest neutron stars discovered over the years. Um, and this always pushes our understanding of the physics of how you form a neutron star and, and why a star doesn't form a black hole. And, and actually, what, what happens in that area between forming a, a neutron star and, for, and forming a black hole to the interior of the star? Because uh, originally, this star was a star very much like the sun. It had 
it was largely hydrogen and helium and uh, it had a catastrophic event it blew itself inside out uh, in a supernova explosion and the intense pressure of that supernova explosion converted all of the atoms into neutrons and uh, that's a that's a crazy enough concept on, in its own but actually if if it were more massive uh, it, it very much more massive it would have formed a black hole but what happens if it were in this strange re- region in between would the neutrons have broken down into other things the, the quarks quarks exactly would it be this soup of just bare quarks and actually that's the process that 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 forms the neutrons in the the beginning is that you you your uh, protons and neutrons are quarks at the very at the, their very fundamental level and, and you just persuade some of the quarks to become other quarks mm-hmm. and uh, and you reform them in di- in different arrangements and so all the protons turn into neutrons so although this is astronomy it's almost particle fundamental particle physics trying yeah. to understand this and that we don't really know what's the what the structure of a neutron star is we've never seen one up close that'd be quite dangerous to get too close to for a, for a start uh, but that does mean that uh, the only thing we can do is look at them look at them from afar and there are various models various theories of what they might be like and they have implications on how fast they spin and how fast the, their spin might change um, what happens if they they merge or they orbit each other and so things like merging neutron stars discovered in gravitational wave observations can give hints on this so the the, the new the new idea uh, of or the new the new um, best guess or one of the new best guesses of the maximum mass of neutron stars is 2.17 times the mass of the sun and this one is 2.14 times the mass of the sun so it's incredibly close to that uh, to that limit as you say there's this gap above that this mass gap so um yes in some respects another you know biggest largest furthest type story that you get a lot but actually um in interesting examples of objects to try and study uh, more about because they're so unusual and so so like, weird so weird yeah okay so that's that's outside our solar system let's come back inside our solar system and let's come very close to home uh, first of all uh, to our own moon we've talked recently about missions to the moon we had uh, an israeli lander uh, Bereshit, that crashed on the moon uh, a few months ago uh, we've had um, the Chinese Chang'e 4 and its uh, rover U-22 on the far side of the moon. And there was another attempt, uh, the fourth nation to try landing on, or the, this could have been the fourth nation to successfully land on the moon, was uh, possibly going to be India with uh, its Chandrayaan-2 mission and its uh, Vikram lander. Um, sadly, things didn't go quite to plan. No, this is, uh, the Vikram lander has joined one of the the many pieces of space junk strewn across the surface of the moon. Um, it, as it was descending, it lost communications and uh, uh, not like the, the, the Bereshit mission where uh, it just, the, the, there was a software glitch and the, the engines cut out and it just <laughs> plummeted. Uh, the communications were just lost and so the fine-tuning uh, to land the, the lander successfully um, just ended and... Uh, it was maintaining communication the whole time so that the uh, the, the mission controlled it the nasa the, the nasa deep space network um could could see what was happening all the way down to the surface which is actually quite an interesting pro- uh, process in itself um to 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 see the moon uh, up close get good telemetry as you're descending to the moon and it'll be useful for future missions as well but pro- probably not as useful as successfully landing on the moon no. 
Uh, with this one, I did I did read some some reports saying that uh, it was it, about two kilo, uh, two kilometers above the surface, and it was just rotating itself so its camera got a slightly better view. But possibly another software glitch. It looks like it f- maybe flipped itself upside down, and then its thrusters instead of slowing it down, um, then started driving it faster downwards, which is not a good not a good idea. So um, uh, very sad end to that lander, but the, the orbiter, the Chandrayaan-2 orbiter is still very successfully orbiting uh, the moon, going to study the, the moon's surface. Um, this goes to show that, you know, space is hard. If you look back at the history of, of moon missions and Mars missions and Venus missions and so on, in the 60s and 70s, it was largely uh, the former Soviet Union and uh, the, and the United States that were doing all of these, you know, launching all these missions, and they weren't very successful at all. No, the they start. were really not successful. In fact, people died uh, in mm-hmm. the certainly in the US, and I'd be surprised if they didn't. In uh, there weren't cosmonauts that died as well, and uh, yet there was uh, a lot of a lot of crashes on the moon in the attempt to, to get people onto the moon uh, at the end of the uh, at the end of the sixties. So, so the fact that these these nations that are you know, trying this for the first time, it's not particularly surprising. It's sad, but it's not particularly surprising that, that this is hard uh, to do. You have to learn from all these uh, learn from all these mistakes, and there is some collaboration. We're trying to learn from past mistakes as well. But um, fingers crossed. Uh, we've got Chandrayaan two in orbit. Um, perhaps there'll be a Chandrayaan three with another uh, attempt uh, at a lander again at some point in the future. So that's a spacecraft that we've sent from Earth to another uh, body. Um, we've got something, um, probably not a spacecraft, uh, coming to us from somewhere else. So we have um, our first interstellar comet uh, flying by. Now, this this might be a little bit reminiscent of something we talked about last year, uh, an object called Oumuamua, uh, I think is the... Yeah, the there's a glottal stop at the yeah. beginning, so it's... Excellent. So that was the previous one. Uh, This is another one. Um, This is a comet that's been discovered. Uh, It's called uh, C2019Q4 Borisov, um, discovered by uh, an amateur astronomer, I think. Yeah, called Borisov. Uh, Comets are one of the the few objects that if you discover them, you can name after yourself. And that's that's why Borisov decided that uh, it would be called Borisov. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was, I think, a, a... Using an observatory, uh, a, a professional observatory in the Crimea, um, Borisov discovered this this object, and uh, it appears to be not going around the sun, which is why astronomers think that it is interstellar. It's come from another star. Uh, it's got uh, a very very strange orbit path, um, it, which we call eccentricity. And it's, uh, it's, it's highly eccentric, and so it appears to be an interstellar visitor. Mm-hmm. And it's, so it's, it's going something like 30 kilometres a second too fast to be anything that could be orbiting our sun. Uh, so as you say, it's coming from afar. It's not something, it's coming from out of the, the plane, the disk of our solar system, so it's not been put onto this orbit by any of the planets in our solar system. Um, also, with, with the previous one, with Oumuamua, we discovered it on its way out as it had just passed um, this one is currently on its way in. It's not going to get particularly close to the Earth itself, but we have got a long time to study this. Months, maybe a year, yeah. uh, to, to keep watching this. So actually, it's October uh, of this year is going to be the really interesting time to try and get lots of observations as it moves moves away from the Sun from our point of view, um, passes by just outside the orbit of Mars, I think, uh, and then moves out of the solar system again. 
so to try and get lots and lots of observations, I'm sure there's time on the Hubble Space Telescope and lots and lots of uh, uh, other ground-based telescopes. One of the largest telescopes in the world, uh, Grantican in the Canary Islands, a 10-meter diameter telescope, has been making observations of its of its spectrum, this, this the, the, the properties of its light that tell us what it might be made of. Seems to be not too dissimilar to solar system comets. Maybe that's not that surprising. Yes, that's right. When we think about uh, what... So this model of a snowy dirt ball or a dirty snowball, um, uh, uh, lumps of, of ice and rock in this uh, clumped together that are formed in the outer reaches of a solar system, uh, then we wouldn't expect it to be vastly different. Uh, it would be very interesting if we can get detailed measurements of the, the water, which I think might be possible uh, through spectroscopy, through, through um, this, this fingerprinting of uh, the light then we may be able to, to tell something about the, the, the water. And that, was, uh, that would be a, a really interesting thing to see if the, the, the water that's there is the same as the water that we have in our solar system. Now, you might think water is just water, but uh, water is made of hydrogen and oxygen. Uh, and hydrogen, it fundamentally, is, is just a proton. And, um, but you, uh, you can have enriched hydrogen which uh, has a neutron with it and you can have doubly enriched hydrogen which has two neutrons with it which is still hydrogen but is heavier than normal so chemically it's still hydrogen but physically it's got this extra stuff that's right yeah and uh, if and all water has some amount of this uh, these these extra these strange hydrogens which are called deuterium and tritium in them uh, and l by looking at the percentage of these these strange hydrogens in water, we can tell whether the the water is uh, is like the water that we have on Earth and the the, the water that comets that we see going around the sun uh, from our solar system. And uh, we could compare Borisov with those. Of course, because this is a this is a comet, it is active. It's got a it's got a tail. It's got a coma, an atmosphere of, of material being thrown off it. So it gives us more stuff to analyze. You can see the stuff coming off it a bit more easily than you can with just a a single asteroid that's just a point in your in, in your telescope, just a pinprick of light. So uh, me uh, measurements of this will continue over the coming months. Um, astronomers that look at small solar system bodies are uh, very, very excited about what they're going to find with this and to be able to study it. So I'm sure there's going to be an awful lot of competition. Uh, and perhaps in a month or two, when we've found a bit more, uh, we'll be able to bring some of the uh, results uh, from there. So from... Uh, so from water vapour on exoplanets to uh, interstellar visitors from some other star, we don't know which one, of course, that's it for this month. Don't forget you can find past episodes and subscribe to the podcast at pythagastro.uk. Until next month, goodbye. Goodbye. You've been listening to Pythagorean Astronomy, an extended version of this month's Astronomy Roundup from Pythagoras' Trousers, a weekly science and technology radio show presented by me, Rhys Phillips. You can catch up on full episodes of Pythagoras' Trousers, subscribe to our podcast and get in touch by going to www.pythagoras-trousers.radio.fm.